Well, good morning. Yeah, as always, it's good to be back here. Such an honor to get invited back to preach the word at Woods Edge. Um, You guys are just so blessed to have such a great leadership uh, here over you. Pastor Jeff is incredible. And I just just want to say here as well at the very beginning, this is a really sincere thank you uh, to this church and many of you in here individually. Um, My wife and I recently, this past summer, got to go um, share the gospel in Frankfurt, Germany, to many of the, the, the Muslim refugees that were pouring into that city, that are still pouring into that city. And uh, my wife and I got an opportunity to lead a team of people to go to some of these refugee sites, share the gospel with them, many for the first time hearing about Jesus, stories about Jesus, reading the Word, uh, praying together with them. Um, and so many of you here partnered with us in that, and you gave generously to that. So I just want to say thank you for this church and for many of you in here for partnering with us and for your passion to see the gospel reach those who have not heard about Jesus in this world. And there are millions of people that have not heard about Jesus in this world. And you guys are on the front lines of giving and sending to that. So I just want to thank you. Um, Pastor Jeff and I talked briefly a few months back um, about the sermon today. And like Wood's Edge, my church back in Austin, we, uh, we went through the book of Exodus recently. Uh, we're actually a little behind you guys. We're just finishing up right now. And uh, when we came to this big place in the books of, book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, very famous uh, place in, in the book of Exodus, we as a church paused and we did a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments, a commandment each week. And I have to say that when we did that, when we examined each of the Ten Commandments like that, God did some pretty major things in my heart in seeing his commandments like that. Uh, it helped me to see God's nature and his character more clearly. God is not just giving out commandments randomly because he feels like making us do things. The commandments that God gives are intentional and they express his nature, his heart, and what leads us to greatest flourishing and health in this world. And so this is why over and over again, throughout the Psalms, David exclaims things like, oh, how I love your law. You ever read through the book of Leviticus? And, and kind of sit back and go, man, God, this. I mean, the way that you command that blood to be smeared on some big toes and the way that you command that fabric should never be mixed, I mean, incredible. We probably don't do that, right? But I'm convinced that whenever you take that in-depth of a look at each of God's commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, you come away from that Uh, examining God's law, feeling more aware of your own sinfulness in light of God's holiness, but at the same time, more aware of God's grace that redeems us and teaches us his ways that lead us to flourishing in this world. This is what the commandments of God are always aiming us toward. They show us God's character, his holiness, how much we continually fall short of that, and they show us his incredible grace to redeem us and make us a people of his own treasured possession that he is teaching and sanctifying, making holy through his commandments. And so, Pastor Jeff suggested it would be a good idea for me to kind of focus in this morning on one of these commandments with you all today. And so this morning we're going to be looking at a commandment that often goes overlooked in our day and age. One that I think is often very misunderstood by our culture, by many of us probably in here. Uh, and it is the commandment that I think cuts right down to our very hearts. It's intended to, the deepest parts of who we are. And yet, it usually flies completely under the radar for many of us. It's not a commandment we usually think of when we think of the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the sin of coveting. Coveting. Now already, likely, when you hear that here, you, you sort of have to think for a second and remind yourself, okay, what is coveting again? Have I ever even used that word before? Uh, it's, not a, it's not a word that we commonly use in our day-to-day life. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. 
You thought you were done with Exodus. <laughs> we're back in it. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 20 by just reading God's introduction, the preface, the preamble to the, the Ten Commandments in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to the Tenth Commandment we find in verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, this is God's word. Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now stop right there. Notice before God gives any commandments, he reminds the Israelite people who he is and what he's done for them. He reminds them that he is the God of Israel. He is the Lord their God and that he has redeemed them. He's saved them. He's delivered them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. This is the way the gospel works for us, right? We are accepted, we are forgiven, we are saved, we are delivered by the blood of Jesus, and therefore we obey him. Therefore we obey him. And so often we get that backwards, don't we? We, we, we think, if I just obey enough, if I just do all the right things that God tells me to do, then maybe he'll accept me. Maybe he'll, he'll think I'm an okay person and, and bring me into heaven. That's not the way the gospel works, though. We are accepted and therefore we obey. And this is the same pattern that God follows here in the Ten Commandments. Skip down to verse 17 with me. He says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So here we have God's last commandment, the Ten Commandments to his people, and he commands that we shall not covet various things. Now the word covet been frequently misunderstood as people have read and sought to apply this commandment. And, and the word covet simply means to have an improper desire, an improper craving for something. That's all it means. And people have often confused covetousness with mere jealousy, but that's not entirely what's going on here in this commandment. It's not just jealousy. It's actually deeper than envy or jealousy. To covet something is to desire something that has not been given to you. Something that is not yours. It's not obtainable at the moment through godly means. It is an unhealthy, disordered, and improper desire that starts in the heart. It's in the heart. Now let me be clear. If you are jealous of someone today, then you are absolutely breaking the 10th commandment. But coveting in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that you are always therefore jealous. Because you see, jealousy is simply just our attitude and disposition toward people who have what we want, what we covet in this world. But coveting is much deeper. It's much more insidious. It's much more difficult to locate and discern in ourselves. And why is that? Well, because we desire literally all the time. We are never not desiring. And, and we, in fact, were made by God to desire. It's part of our human nature. God made us in his image as desirers, first and foremost. It's the most fundamental aspect of what makes us human. There, there's a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith who's written a lot of books on this kind of topic. A lot of them are very heady and very difficult to understand. They'll make your head spin. But he's written a recent book that is very accessible to the common person. And it's a phenomenal book. And it's got a really provocative title. It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And this is what he says in the, in the introduction about this. He says, We are what we love. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Quoting Proverbs 4 there. You are what you love. That's the point of the book. 
And so because of this, the Tenth Commandment against coveting gets at what is most fundamentally broken about us as image bearers of God. See, we, we were meant to be God's perfect image bearers in this world, his representatives in creation. And this was an existence that was marked by a perfect love of both God, our creator, and each other as fellow image bearers. And this sinless existence was marked not by the absence of desires. That's not a perfect existence, the absence of desires. That's what Eastern religions teach us, that a perfect existence is one empty and devoid of all desire. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is marked by the fullness of desire, the fullness of desire, a wholehearted, holy, and proper desire in this world to love and to serve both God and each other and enjoy his gifts that he gives us, and with no other desire creeping in to compete with that. The image of God is most perfected in you, not in the absence of desire, but in the fullness of desire, when your desires are proper and rightly ordered in this world. And anyone who spent any time around children trying to teach them, if you've been back in the kids' department maybe, you can attest to this. What do we want for children at the end of the day? We want them to grow and develop and learn to love what is right. Not just to know what is right. That's not enough. This is what makes parenting so difficult because we are actually literally trying to form and shape the little desires of those demon hearts, right? (laughs) All growing up as a little boy... My mom will be here today. She can attest to this. All growing up as a little boy, I, my mom desperately wanted me to be polite. She wanted me to be just a polite little boy to other people, around other people. And I was just such a crude and obnoxious little kid. And she would say things to me before we got in public all the time. She'd pull me aside and we'd have a little talks. And she'd say, all right, look, Stephen, whenever you burp or do something like that, you need to say, excuse me. Okay? That's what you need to say. And, and whenever someone does something nice for you or gives you something, you need to say, Thank you, okay? That's what you do. And, and what was she doing there? What was she doing in that? Well, it was a good thing that she was doing, but all she was doing was she was only teaching me information about politeness. That's all she was doing. Uh, she wasn't teaching me to love politeness, you see? And this became most apparent uh, whenever I would actually burp in public, which was often, and she would uh, say to me with motherly disgust, Stephen, what do you say? And me, being the ornery little punk that I was, would always respond, thank you. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not love politeness. And I loved, I loved rebellion and insubordination. That's what I loved doing. And it wasn't because I lacked information on how to be polite. My desires were improper. My desires were disordered. When we raise and when we teach and we discipline children, it isn't enough to just teach them right information about the world. You see, we are calling them and training them to love what is good and true and beautiful in this world so that they can, in their life, have good and proper desires for what is right. This is what it means to have the image of God restored in us, to have our loves and desires so properly ordered that we love the right things. We love what is best for us in every moment and season of our lives. But, as we know, sin has marred that image in us. We still bear the image of God as human creatures, but this image in us has been distorted. It's been twisted by sin. And the essence of all sin is this improper desire that the Tenth Commandment is really getting at for us. We were made to desire the right things in this world in accordance with our worship of the one true God. But sin has caused us, every single one of us, to have improper desires 
disordered cravings on a daily basis. This is what makes the 10th commandment the single most universally penetrating commandment for all of us. If you've ever studied or looked at the Ten Commandments before and you feel as though you've been able to sort of skate by on the first nine commandments, the Tenth Commandment is the one that lets absolutely no one off the hook. Lets absolutely no one walk away feeling like you're doing okay. It is the most universally penetrating and the most universally condemning commandment for two main reasons. Two main reasons. Number one, it is entirely internal and hidden from plain sight. This commandment is violated solely in the heart and in the mind, which makes it incredibly difficult to pinpoint in, our own, in ourselves and other people where we might be breaking this commandment and falling short. With every other commandment, you see, it's fairly easy to tell when you're in disobedience, right? It's fairly easy when someone lies to you to prove to them, hey, you just lied to me here. And likewise, no one goes to bed with another woman and says, oh, wait a second, you're not my wife, right? The, 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 the sins of lying and adultery, like the others are fairly obvious sins we commit. Coveting, not so obvious. Not so obvious. Which means that this sin, maybe more than any other, is especially dangerous for us this morning. The second reason this is the most universally condemning commandment is because obedience to this commandment, obedience to this commandment forms the bedrock, the the, the foundation of obedience for every other commandment that we see in the scriptures. You must first obey this command if you are going to properly observe all of the other commandments. Or to put it negatively, whenever you break any of the other commandments that God gives us, you have also broken this commandment. Because every sin starts with a wrong, improper desire. We covet, and so we steal. We we have an improper desire, and so we lust, and we go to pornography, and we commit adultery, as Jesus told us. We, we covet, and so we'll even lie to others and ourselves to obtain what we desire. We'll do things like, well, you know, I, I need this 16th pair of shoes. I need that. The other 15, they're just not going to do. This one, this is the one that I need for, for all my problems right now. You see how this works? See how this works for us? And so given the, the broad sweeping implications of this commandment for every area of our lives, uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning answering two, two re- really main questions today. Two main questions. Number one, what are ways that we covet? What are ways that we covet in this world? And number two, what does it l- actually look like? What would it actually look like for us to obey this commandment and to walk in obedience and in flourishing in this commandment? So first, what are the ways that we covet? What does this actually look like? Well, as we saw earlier... Obedience and disobedience to this command is entirely located internally in the heart and the mind. So it's very difficult to pinpoint covetousness as a sin by itself. It's almost always in tandem with something else in our life. The human heart cannot remain covetous for very long without it eventually getting out somewhere and showing itself in some area of our life. This is exactly what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's almost like he's just ticking right through the Ten Commandments, isn't it? But let's look again at the commandment. Exodus 20.17, he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Notice how God phrases the commandment here. It's very interesting. He, he doesn't just simply say to the Israelites, do not covet. Done. No, he actually gives specifics in the commandments. It's kind of like a Dr. Seuss book, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. 
I am the Lord your God. And he does this for a couple reasons. He does this for a couple reasons. First, he's showing us that our hearts are prone to covet anything. Anything. He's not giving us here an exhaustive list of all the things that we might covet in this world. But by giving us this list, he's piling things up in the commandment to show us the, the sheer comprehensiveness of our heart's tendency to covet literally anything that we might see in this world, that we might want. We know this because he, he ends the, the commandment with just throwing in or anything that is your neighbor's. And the second thing that we see here is that he's showing us that covetousness always has a specific object in mind. There's always something specific that our hearts crave or desire or see when we covet. And, and in that thing, whatever it is, it has not been given to us. It's not ours. It is someone else's. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, to put it very simply, what do you not currently have in your life right now that God has not given you this morning that you find yourself craving, desiring? When you see it or you see someone that has it, you look at it and you say, I want that. I want that. I, I've, got to, I've got to have that. I won't be happy unless I have that. And your heart just sort of grabs onto it. The possibilities here are, are literally endless, aren't they? as the commandment indicates for us. But I think we can really, at the end of the day, boil most of the covetousness that we experience down to two main categories. Two main categories. The first is material. Just any, the, any of the things in this world that we might acquire. We see material things in this world that people might have. Money, a house, a car, a job, vacations, some sort of lifestyle, education, whatever. And, and your heart is filled with desire for these things. By the way, this is really hard for us to notice in ourselves. Have I mentioned that? We are so easily deceived and manipulated in the world we live in right now through all the advertisements and movies and shows and Instagram feeds that are constantly being paraded before our eyes, always showing off someone else's life to us and all the trappings that go along with it. This is what the entire advertising industry is based on the sin of coveting. They want you to violate the sin of coveting. That's the whole point of advertising. Now, I'm not saying any of those things that they're selling are inherently evil. They're actually good things. But, but what, what I'm saying is that there is no way, there's absolutely no way that our lives will ever be able to catch up with even a fraction of the things we are tempted to desire that we might see in this world. And so as a result... If we're honest with ourselves, even for a minute, none of us really feel like we covet material things. None of us feel that sting of conviction in the gut. You know what I'm talking about. Whenever we covet, like we might feel whenever we lie or steal or commit adultery. Why? Well, because I don't have as much stuff as that guy. I'm not as materialistic as she is. I don't give in to every desire that I have to acquire things. So we convince ourselves that simply because we don't give in to every desire that we have for the stuff that we see in the world, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. We are tempted on a daily basis to covet the things that we see that other people have. And for a lot of us here, I know this, I grew up in this area, this is the woodlands, a lot of us, we have the means to get it. We have the means to get these things, and our desires often go completely unchecked because of that. I want it, and so therefore I'm going to go get it. We covet material things. The second category of things that we covet is relational 
relational. We covet relationships that we see, don't we, that people have. This also takes on many forms, which makes it equally difficult to detect in our own hearts. And this is a really hard one, honestly. I get it, because the Bible is filled with passage after passage praising and commending relationships in this world as good and proper and right and necessary. But again, as we see in the commandment itself, it is entirely possible to covet even relationships that are good. Single people. I'm talking to single people for a second. Has your good desire for marriage morphed into this ugly sin of coveting a spouse? Are you on every dating site in the world, constantly consumed with looking at who they matched you with? Is that your life now? When you see someone that you wish would ask you out, or you see someone that you wish would reciprocate feelings for you, are you coveting a relationship with that person? Has a good desire for children and a family become coveting in your heart when you see other people's families? Married folks, do you look at other people and see their good and admirable qualities and think, maybe marriage would be easier or more fun or more satisfying with this other man or woman, whether or not that person's real or on a screen or in a romance novel? Has a good desire, all of us, has a good desire for really close friends who know you intimately, caused you to isolate and distance yourself from real people that God has actually placed around you in your life right now? Has a a covetous desire for deeper relationships that you see other people enjoying actually shallowed the relationships that you're in and have available to you right now? See, when we assess ourselves in our relationships in comparison to the ones that we see other people enjoying, We're tempted to even covet those relationships, aren't we? For most of us, it's very easy to rationalize our covetous desires. Because what could possibly be wrong with desiring a spouse? What could possibly be wrong with desiring a family? Or really close friends? Or a better community? What could possibly be wrong with pursuing a better lifestyle for you and your family? Or a bigger house? Or better transportation? Or or a more fulfilling career? You see... Therein lies the difficulty with this sin. This is why it cuts really close to the heart. Absolutely nothing is wrong with those things. In fact, all of those are very good things. The Bible commends them to us. They're all good gifts from God. But you see, that's just it. They're gifts from God. We don't deserve them. We simply receive them as he chooses to give them to us in his grace and providence and wisdom. You see, what coveting does is it turns God's gifts into givens. Coveting turns God's gifts into givens. It turns the things that you desire, the things that you should be bringing before God and community, and it turns them into things in your life that are being withheld from you. They're being withheld from you. Things that you're due, that you're owed, simply by virtue of the fact that you desire them. How often, do, without realizing it, do we think things like, I'm dissatisfied with my job. I must need to go look for a new job then. I'm unhappy in my singleness. I must need to go on the hunt for a spouse then. I I like my friend's new house. I should start looking at houses then. Coveting turns God's gifts into givens in our life. So the question is, what are we supposed to do? What what does obedience to this commandment actually look like for us? What, What would flourishing in this commandment actually look like for us? Well, what the 10th commandment calls you to can be summed up really in one word. One simple yet incredibly elusive word for our day and age, 
contentment. Contentment. And this contentment that God is calling us to is rooted in an abiding awareness of his providence and grace in our life. It comes from the belief in the the deepest corners of your heart that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It, It comes from trusting that our God is actually a good father who knows what we desire and need before we even ask, and he knows how to give good gifts to his children. It comes from a confidence A daily confidence in the fact that our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he is storing up for us a glorious inheritance to come in the next life that is imperishable. That moth and rust cannot destroy. And when we covet, as his kids, when we covet, we are failing to believe that. We're failing to believe that. Contentment is what the Apostle Paul calls the secret to all of life. The secret to all of life. Look at Philippians 4 with me. We'll have it up on the screen. Philippians 4, verse 11. Paul writes this. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul is, is walking us here in this passage through all of the great swings in God's providence that he has experienced in his own life and that we all experience, really, on a weekly, if not daily, basis. Brought low, abounding, plenty, hunger, abundance, need. Our circumstances are all over the place. And in all of those swings, we are always tempted to let our desires just sort of chase our circumstances around. My job is boring. I want a new job. I'm single. I want a spouse. My marriage is hard. I want a new spouse. My money is tight. I want more money. I hate my clothes. I want new clothes. Our desires just sort of chase our circumstances around day after day, week after week, don't they? It's exhausting, really. It's exhausting to live that way day after day, never satisfied. And it's exhausting to be around people that are like that in your life. Or worse, to be married to someone who's like that. Someone who's never satisfied. What is the secret, Paul says? Contentment. Contentment. Verse 13, one of the most misused, misquoted verses of all time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When was the last time you used that verse to fight against covetousness in your heart and for contentment in every circumstance? That's how Paul used that verse. How do we get there, though? How do we get to that place of contentment? Contentment is not the absence of desires, contrary to what many people might think. It doesn't mean that you just sit around sort of resigned to whatever happens in this Zen state, no ambition, just completely indifferent to your surroundings. That's not contentment. Contentment is a return to the fullness of proper and rightly ordered desires in this world. It means that our desires are first fully met and satisfied in God alone, in his provision and providence and grace as he sees fit. And so it means that we are constantly bringing our desires to him. He asks us to do that instead of exhausting ourselves, either constantly giving in to every desire we have or constantly trying to suppress the desires we have and act like they aren't there. We open our hearts and our desires to our our good Father and we let Him dispense the gifts according to His wisdom and grace in our life. But you might say, well, He knows what you desire even before you bring it to Him, so why the step? Why does He ask me to, to bring the desires before Him? Well, this requires us to trust God with our desires, doesn't it? 
And it's a practice that we do of us admitting back to him that really only he ultimately knows what is best for us. Don't you see? This is how Paul learned contentment in every circumstance and with every need and desire. This is how he can do all things in the strength that God provides him through trusting in him in all circumstances and with every desire. When you open yourself up to constantly bringing your desires before the Lord, you open yourself up to being taught by your good father what it is you truly need. What it is you truly need and what it is you should truly be desiring in this life. What it is God, our good father, says we need. And you get to experience something amazing. The daily joy and gratitude of getting to see God over and over and over again pour out gift upon gift to you. And your heart can be truly satisfied with them with the gifts that he gives. Not, not continuously craving the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to satisfy you. And over time, as we do this, as we do this, we begin to uncover a truly profound secret, Paul says. We learn how to be content. We, Paul had to learn how to be content. It didn't just happen to him. We learn how to be content through this. Not giving ourselves over to every desire. Not constantly trying to pretend our desires don't exist. But bringing them before our good Father and letting him be the giver and the provider of every good and perfect gift. Now, we can stop there, but I suspect that many of you here this morning, for many of us, myself included, contentment still remains as a fairly elusive concept for you. You're like, yeah, I mean, I get that. I need to be content. Um, Yeah, I don't know what that looks like. And and maybe the reason that contentment in your life is so elusive for you is because of this internal, unseen, nasty little sin of coveting that lies dormant in your heart, buried and hidden from sight. When the Apostle Paul was confronted with the, the law of God, the commandments of God, it was actually the tenth commandment against coveting that made him to fully realize just how sinful he actually was. This is the same guy who we just read said he had to learn contentment in every circumstance. Remember? Look at Romans chapter 7 with me. We're going to have the verse on the screen. Paul writes this. He says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What Paul's doing here is he's explaining how the law brought about his knowledge of sin in his heart. And what is, why does he cite the Tenth Commandment? Because Paul, like I suspect many of us, he's a righteous dude. He could probably tick through the first nine commandments and go, yeah, I mean, I'm doing okay. Uh, a few slip-ups of lying here and there. Uh, maybe a little lust here and there when I watch a TV show or something at night. But, you know, all in all, doing okay. We, we, we relegate our sinfulness we're tempted to do this, right? We, we relegate our sinfulness solely to the realm of our words and our actions. But rarely do we come to raw terms with the fact that that which is most fundamentally human about you, the most basic part of who you are, what makes up your most core identity, your desires, are wicked before God. They're disordered. They're broken. They're improper. This is the conclusion that Paul himself comes to after wrestling with this commandment for a little bit. In Romans chapter 7, look what he says in verse 24. He exclaims, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. He, he doesn't say, wretched things that I've done. 
He doesn't say wretched things that I've said. He doesn't say wretched consequences that I've received. He doesn't even say wretched thoughts that I think. No, he says wretched man that I am. That's an identity statement right there. I am wretched. In other words, his reflection on the 10th commandment led him to a proper assessment of himself. Since my desires are the most basic and natural thing about me and my most basic desires are disordered, they're improper, they're wicked, they're broken, then I am truly a wretched person. Through and through. Inside and out. Now you might be hearing that this morning and thinking, man, that just seems really negative. It's a really negative way to go about your life and thinking about yourself. I don't know if I want to go around all day thinking about that of myself, like that I'm just this wretched person. I don't want to constantly have to be reminded of how sinful I am. That's a miserable way to live, right? Can't I just move past all that and get to the positive stuff that makes me feel good? Well, no, actually. Not, not, not if you want to experience the secret of true contentment that Paul is talking about. Because you see, this is the paradox of the Christian faith at its root. This is the paradox of the gospel. Until we get to a place where we, just, we see just how wretched we are and how much we are in need of a Savior, in need of being made new, you will never find contentment in this life. Because you'll constantly be walking around convincing yourself that you'd just be doing okay if you just had this thing or, or that relationship or that job or a little bit more money. Never coming to terms with the reality that your improper desires mean that you are wicked and in need of a Savior. Not more stuff. Not more stuff. And so if we never get to a place for ourselves that Paul does in Romans chapter 7, we will never experience the root of all contentment. Gratitude. Gratitude to a gracious God who sent Jesus Christ, his Son, into the world to redeem us from the curse of sin to redeem us from the discontentment in this life, to redeem us from this feeling like we're never satisfied. You want to know who the most content people on the planet are? People who know how much they've been forgiven and saved from. People who feel no sense of entitlement to the things of this world whatsoever. Thankful people. Thankful people. Those are the most content people on the planet. And Paul says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. And he asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? The 10th commandment doesn't just show you your need for contentment. It actually leads you to the very person you can learn it from. Paul finishes that by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, friends, is the solution to our coveting problem. The source of all contentment in your life. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed before we go to the Lord in prayer, I just want to say, if you, if you find yourself here this morning struggling with contentment in your life, maybe before you start trying new techniques or new methods or new resolves to be more content, why don't you first get to a place of honesty with the wickedness of your own heart, the covetousness, the, 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 the improper disorder, disordered cravings of your own heart, that indicate what Paul saw in himself, wretched man that I am. And then let that, don't stop there. That's not the good news. Let that realization lead you 
this morning to Jesus Christ himself. The one whom God sent to save you from the curse of sin that we are all under. To lead you to true joy and contentment in this life. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have given us a perfect word. A perfect law, a perfect commandment. That we should not be coveters of the things we see in this world. But Lord, since we are broken, we are imperfect, we are sinners, Lord. When we encounter something perfect, we become aware of how imperfect we are. And so, Father, I pray this morning that by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, that we would come to the end of ourselves and see our great need for Jesus and that our hearts would be satisfied this morning in him. That we would come to him this morning, his blood shed on the cross for us, his resurrection for our new life the Holy Spirit he sent to teach us, point us to him, that we would find satisfaction in knowing that we are saved, we are delivered from this body of death, and that you, Jesus, have done it through your work on our behalf. Lord, would you teach us to be content people, to be thankful people in light of that, to be reminded of your glorious grace in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.